In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I sit down with a lady who was one of the country's most tattooed women. Kaz Smith has recently retired after a career as a tattoo artist and has appeared in newspapers, magazines and on television to promote her art. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Kaz Smith, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Now, you describe yourself as an eclectic person. Very much so. How would that translate? Um, It probably translate as in things that resonate with myself, with my heart, I follow. So writing poetry, playing the guitar, collecting crystals, meditating. Um, I love tattoos as well, so there's that side of it. Um, So it's just, yeah, just a mixture that makes up Kaz, I guess. (laughs) Okay, now you're talking about uh, the more spiritual side, meditation. Yeah. How did you get into that in the first place? Well, that that is a funny story, yes, because my whole family um, uh, joined an Andamaga, which was a meditation group. Wow. Or, they were like a cult, yeah, I guess, were, yeah. um, when I was 13 years old. So um, mum and dad were quite hippie. So we, ha- we lived on an acreage and um, they joined this meditation group and me and my sister just went along. But I can remember um, going to um, like um, moon dances, uh, full moon dances on the beach and stuff like this. They had very um, interesting friends. And um, yeah, dad used to bring like pick up hitchhikers and bring them home for months and stuff like that stuff like that but that was the same around the same time I turned vegetarian which I still am to this day so so how would you describe growing up then with that sort of upbringing looking back I wish I'd been more aware of how special it was I wasn't as you know I was just young and thinking oh yeah this is what we what we do all the kids at school thought I was weird Um, oh they're those hippie people out on that property my dad built a house out of stubbies, like, <laughs> yeah, so actually out of stubbies, like, that he collected from the local pub. Um, it's still there. The house is still there. Whereabouts? Uh, in, uh, up near Emu Park, Rockhampton Way. So, yeah, one of my um, school friends ended up buying it. So I haven't been there for years, but... Yeah, it was pretty special. He hand-carved the front door. There was stone pillars um, on each corner, stone fireplace. It was very special. What was it like when he was building a house of stubbies? Did you realise how different that was? Not really. Not until I think back on it now and I think, (laughs) wow, you know, like I I wish they'd never, you know, got rid of it because it would have been great to have that now. Um, but, yeah, to, to me and my sister, it was just a pain because, like, he had all these stubby bottles that he wanted washing to get the labels off. And so we had to do that in big 44-gallon drums. And so there was a lot involved in it. How big was the house? Oh, geez, I don't know. 
probably around your three bedroom four bedroom two two bit two bedroom and big open area kitchen lounge yeah not real big i reckon probably about six by six like a a shed square shed how would you describe your dad then building a house of stubbies how would you describe your dad well dad's very uh, dad's dutch so he um come over from holland um but he's always been quite alternative so um he used to read tarot cards and you know he's just just got this very alternative taint to him i guess he's got long white hair long white beard wears a bandana uh, he used to race sidecars for years so before we moved to Queensland we were in Melbourne and we were at the motorcycle track every weekend so you know it's um from that to that I don't know why we moved to Queensland and did such a big sea change from from him racing sidecars every weekend to a hippie on 30 acres (laughs) growing organic veggies but that's you know and join in an Andamaga. Well, that's a really interesting one. What was he doing in Melbourne before he turned? He's north? a painter, house painter. Do so, you remember what he was like before he started the the whole hippie journey? Yeah, I, I think his personality was very much the same, you know. But as a kid, you don't really sort of he was delve just much in. Yeah. Yeah, delve much into um, or what his belief systems were and conversations him and mum might have had that, you know, we've got to get out of the city and move to the country and, you know. It's, um, but we did travel in a bus, so he had a big bus that he did up that we lived in while we were travelling up to Queensland and on the back of it he had a big trailer with a couple of motorbikes in there as well so and Harleys. So my mum used to drive a Harley as well, or ride, I should say. So, yeah. Well, that was leading me to your mum. How did she fit into all of this? Mum was just mum. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, she, she's a very, very good house, house, you know, like she always did a lot of cleaning and like was always very organised, but she worked as well, so... But, you know, I think I think from, if I look at both of them together, I think Dad was a, the stronger personality of the two. Yeah. Was, was she Australian or Dutch? Australian, yeah. So yeah. where did so they meet? In Melbourne at a gymnastics club. So as the, as the story goes, so they both did gymnastics and, yeah, I don't think he was long off the boat from Holland when they met. But um, yeah, my um, my mum, my grandma, they're all um, Australian, and my grandmother used to say that she um, she actually, when she was a little girl, had met Ned Kelly, so she was around that um, area of Victoria. Around Glen Rowan. Yeah, 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 around there. So, what sort of stories did you tell you about that? Then must have been. Were you interested? Yeah, I was. Yeah, you know, like um, before she passed away and I was a little bit older and, and like, had you know, it was sort of like, Ned Kelly, like, really? What was he like, you know? And, and she's, oh, he was a very nice lad. 
But, you know, she was obviously remembering that from a girl perspective and had grown up with the stories as like as well. But, yeah, so I did, I should have asked more about that, but I didn't at the time, so. What was her recollection of what happened to Ned Cully then? I didn't know, I don't know, I don't know. I, that's all, all I can remember her saying was he was a nice lad. <laughs> so, and I thought, oh, and the, you know, that was something. And then the Margot. Yeah. Must have been quite an experience to be involved with a sect, a cult, or however you want to describe it. Yeah, that was that was um, really, yeah, strange in a lot of ways. And meditation was quite new to me, so I wasn't, you know, like we'd all be sitting in a room all meditating and I'd be sitting there thinking... What, the, what are we doing? Like, I'm not, you know, I just wasn't really interested. Um, but they had what they what they called like DDs and Dadas. So the DDs were the females and the Dadas were the, the males and they were all dressed in orange. So, but, you know, there was like little things like that, say the vegetarian side of it. Um, I was given a, um, a mantra, a personal mantra by one of the DDs. But yeah, it's it, so, you know, like I was thirteen, so you is know, that something so, that you share, or is it something that you keep to yourself? Well, now everybody's going to hear it, but yeah, it's not something that you know I, I normally share um, because, like, um, I think they were framed, or they were accused of the Hilton bombing. Um, I don't believe that um, because, like, having been on the inside of that side of it I know how much like uh, love respect peace they were preaching it was nothing of nothing about bombs and you know no violence um, no no what was your reaction then you had mentioned the Hilton bombing what was your reaction when they when were when that came out yeah. I didn't believe it straight up I just thought no they've been framed for some reason um, they've gotten on, on someone's radar and they've just been targeted. Was it a way to discredit them? I think so, because then they just sort of like, I don't know, disappeared. It just seemed like they disappeared after that. A 13-year-old meditating is not something that you sort of would think. What were you going through at that stage as a person? Do you remember? I, yeah, I do, because I was very, very rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, smoking cigarettes, wagging school, um, always in trouble with the teacher, always always doing what I wasn't supposed to be doing. You know, so um, I'd go to school, I'll use jewellery as an example, and you weren't allowed to wear jewellery, so I'd, I'd make up all these bracelets and necklaces and go to school and up to the office I go and they'd all get confiscated off me and the next day I would rock up with more jewellery on. It was just, you know, I was always up the office, always in trouble, always, you know, just rebellious, very rebellious and, um, yeah, I, I don't think I've changed that much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to all the jewellery? Did you give I, any of it back? I, you can you can come and collect it at the end of the year, and then it just didn't. No, I didn't. But it was all just like hippie beads, like little plastic beads, and I was making little bracelets, and you know, it wasn't anything like you know. 
Was it just important. a way of expressing yourself in those days? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I um, yeah, I always had a bit of a um, yeah, rebellious, um, activist sort of feel going on because I like I've always have always written poetry and songs as well and a lot of my songs are based around that and some of them I wrote back then as well so I still have the poems that I wrote back then and they're all all anti-society anti-government respect nature you know like when I think about it now I just feel that a part of me just knew something wasn't right right way back then and my idea of that hasn't changed so still society doesn't seem to be kosher with um, respecting the planet um, respecting people respecting nature um, humanity as a whole like you know um, the division of poor and rich and this whole concept I've always felt that really strongly in my heart what do you think about the division of poor and rich? How do you express it? How do you relate to it? I I think it's um you know her- horrendous that it's even allowed to happen. But even being a business owner, then obviously might be uh, work opposite to that thought. Yeah, it could be if if I was selling I don't know it, like. To me, tattoos, tattoos and piercings are like an expression of a person. And a lot of people will get tattooed because it makes them feel better. Like, um, it's, it's a form of therapy for a lot of people. So it feels like a, um, it feels like an essential thing to me, you know, it's, um, and, and we're not greedy about it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not so, you know, I don't class the business as, I don't know, like Coles or Woolworths. You know what I mean? Like a big corporation and we're making, you know, all this profit margins and stuff like that. It's just, it's more human uh, people based, I guess. Back in the early days when you first started the tattoo journey, Tell us about that. Okay. All right. So, um, so originally, um, uh, I was engaged to to this guy, and he he was a tattooist. So that's how how that all first started. Well, I actually started my journey with him as he was starting his journey, and he owned a couple of shops, and it just led into you know me getting tattooed. At the time, um, there wasn't very many women that were tattooed, not to the extent that I was. So probably in Australia, like a handful of women that were as tattooed as I was. So it was quite rare. And I remember at the time, like um, just about stopping traffic. So I was a lot younger, used to wear a lot skimpier clothes and um, and people would just stare at me with their mouths would drop open and like I could, I'd walk into a shop and not be served. So you didn't hide them? No, I didn't hide them. No, I was quite quite proud of them. But there was there was this bit of a, you know, a, a vibe that if you, 
if you were if you got tattooed, you were a, you were um, not not a good person. So you know you were either a criminal or um, a lady of the night, or you know that your morals weren't you know um, intact, which is just totally ridiculous that people would think that because it was all the armed services that first ever got tattooed. They were the ones that started the tattoo trend. So, you know, um, but yeah. Drunk a um, night in Asia and you'd come home with something. That yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, it's, um, and, and I think, you know, that the tattoo side of me embracing that so much is, is got to do with my rebellious personality that you know society doesn't really like this well I'm going to embrace it full on <laughs> you know I think there's a big part of me that that is um you can't tell me what to do I'm going to do what I want and if you don't like it tough shit part of yeah how, how did I've... you react though when you were getting stared at and refused service and angry very angry uh, not not when I was getting stared at, um, but if I walked into a shop and was refused business, like, you know, totally ignored, I'd be standing there and people would come in after me and be served and wow. they would just blank me. The person behind the counter would just blank me and I would get verbal. I'd, I'd be like, what the actual, what, what, why, why are you ignoring me? And they would just keep ignoring me. Wow. And I knew it was my tattoos, you know. Um, at the time, I walk into a, to another shop, and, and security would security guards would decide to start following me because I I would be the one that would steal, you know. Like it must be her. She's she's the one that's going to put something in her bag. Have you ever stolen? N well, <laughs> when I was a teenager, <laughs> is that part I might of the have might have done a, a little bit of shoplifting, but. I, I'm a very honest person, you know, so I, you know, like the fact that anyone would think that I would steal from them is quite insulting. And I remember like I was with my son one day and um, like he was only really young and we walked into this shop and he'd stolen something and I didn't realise that he'd taken something and the person in the in the shop come over and just like your son and da 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 and like and I'm like oh my god and as soon as we walked outside I just I just said to my son I said don't you realize that with tattoos and and like how I look I got to try to be better than everyone else because they they expect me to be bad you know there's like this if viable feeling that you know that surrounds people that that look a bit different that they can't be trusted and it's you know in my heart, I wanted to to go as much the other way as possible to prove them wrong. That hey, no, you you can be tattooed, you can be pierced, um, you can think different things and still be a moral good person. You know, so yeah. What do your kids think of your tattoos? Well, I trained my son to be a tattooist, so he's he's a tattooist. Back yeah. in the early days when he was just a kid and he's no, growing no, up? No, no, um, It was, a, he was in his mid-twenties, I think. Um, he's 40 now. So he's, you know, and it was his choice. I, you know, I, I um, needed somebody in, in my business and I offered it to him first. 
and um, and he said yes. So he come and learnt to tattoo. So now I want to go back to when you first started because you were experimenting before you met the guy that was the tattooist. I believe that um, you'd some pin and a bit of ink. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. In high school, what happened there? <laughs> um, oh, I I guess like you know. In high school, I was probably with the gang. You know how every school has has a gang, and we we always to you know lunch times and we'd all hang together and all smoke cigarettes and <laughs> and and well we used to do a few little tattoos on each other as well and and it was just with the needles and the cotton and the Indian ink and just you know tap tap as you do and I had them like all over my forearm and I had one which is underneath this here um but yeah and I hid them from my parents for years well they sound pretty cool what did they think oh dad was horrified yeah mum was very you know like she when I think I, I got to a point, I was I was hiding them, and then I, I got to a point where I thought, I can't hide these anymore, I'm sick of hiding them. And so I went to my mum and I said, oh, I've got something to show you. And she just went, oh, go show your father. <laughs> That's all she ever, ever did about it. And um, I remember I, I, went, I went to Dad and I thought, oh, have I really effed up here? I shouldn't have um, <laughs> come out with this, but you know, it, I was sick of hiding it, so, and um, and Dad just he just took took one look at me, tears welled up in his eyes, and he just said, "Get out of my sight." Really? Yeah. And that was that was it, which is unusual because Dad always had something to say, <laughs> but in that case, he it just you know he was a bit hard heartbroken, and um, conversations that we've had about it since. He, um, you know, to him growing up in uh, Holland during the Second World War, he he viewed it as a mark that you you didn't put a mark on your body because then you you know it, it was a belief system that he you know that he carried around that yeah. But now he's proud of me so. Because that's what I was going to ask, as you really developed and got more and they yeah. got classier. Yeah. So yeah. what was his reaction when he started to see more? Well, you know, like um, because I was so heavily tattooed so so um, early on and it was, you know, rare amongst females at that time, um, I was um, like on um, TV, I was um, in magazines like like you know, interviewed and like in the newspaper and all this sort of thing. And it started to become like a bit of a... I Status don't symbol. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and I'd, I'd go to mum or dad, oh, I've got a new tattoo. And they'd go, oh, that's nice. You know, it, it went from them being horrified to, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, and then when it ended up being, you know, my business, which I didn't even like aim for that to happen it just sort of fell into my lap like the steps just went that way so um yeah I'm interested that you've gone from being a pariah for want of a better word to a little bit of notoriety 
Yes. Yeah. How did you react to that? Well, I think, you know, like, um, I don't know, it's like people class you as a bit of a novelty. You know, back then it was a bit of a, you know, you were a bit novel. Um, but I can remember, like, I was interviewed, like, so I went to a tattoo show and I was wearing very, very skimpy gear and I was interviewed and filmed from one of the news stations in Rockhampton. And then they had like these um, like these ads on the TV about their news and they used to put like little snippets of like all these different, and they had my bum on there. For <laughs> 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 on the screen for like months I was on, on, you know, and I'm like, oh, and I'd be out and about, you know, like um, in town and someone would go, oh, you're that person on the news. And I'd go, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Like it was, you know, uh, no. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it, I guess I didn't want to like, yeah, that's me, you know, I was a bit more like, no, no. <laughs> um, it was only my bum, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it wasn't like they seen my face and, you know, yeah, it was definitely you. But they, you know, because I was so heavily tattooed, there wasn't many women that were. They were just, oh, that was you. Yeah. Was there like a... Uh a group of you that were getting tattooed at this stage of, you know, of females that you knew that were exploring that way of thinking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And I mean, like, I can see see how how much it's moved to today that, that you know, I would even hazard a guess that more females get tattooed than males. Really? These days. And... and big tattoos like full sleeves and full backs and you know if if not more very 50-50 what it. do you think of, when you look at someone that's been tattooed do you evaluate them i i would have to say yes to that um and the more i've thought about that over the years i think that that is um conditioning and programming from society that has put that in me whereas like if if I'm on a bus and I see another tattoo person that I I might you know just straight away have a distrust for them myself really myself. wow I know it's weird see I'm being too honest now aren't I <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's but yeah, and and you know, I don't know, and and I know that me more than anyone, I know that 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 it's just the the outside. It's nothing to do with what they are as a person inside, but there'll be that split second, and I do put that down to conditioning from society, um, because I, you know, I believe we've all been programmed, you know, from from early early age. What did you think then when it started to become more mainstream? Yeah, it. I, I, I liked that. Um, I did like it. But a part of me was like, oh, you know, like this secret little, you know, that, I don't know, a bit, a bit of the specialness of it sort of went away. It was good. It was becoming more accepted. But it's like, you know, say, say you have a, have a favourite band 
and and you're there in the, on the ground floor and you're the first one that was supporting them and all of a sudden they really take off and you're like, hang on, I was there first. <laughs> you know, like I, I know them and I was there first and, you know, like that sort of feel to it, I guess. What about yourself? Is there more to come? Do you need more tattoos? Is it addictive? It It is addictive and you can never have too many tattoos. <laughs> is there then... But it's not a, not a bad addiction. Oh, for sure. But is there somewhere where you won't tattoo? Somewhere where I won't. Um, yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tattoo my breasts, so, you know, like, so what you can see here just on the chest area there is probably as far as I would go there. Um, I wouldn't probably go, like, on the stomach area as much, and that's quite popular now. A lot of um, women are getting under the boob, like, um, chandelier-style um, tattoos there. Um, I've been getting a few memorial ones, for friends who've passed away so they seem to be the the latest ones that I've been getting um, and they all have their own little little spot where's the hardest place to tattoo then from getting it perspective well both from getting it and also when you're putting one on someone when you're tattooing someone um so I think I think like, you know, it's like areas like the throat, you know, like, so um, that can be the neck, throat, a very hard area to tattoo on somebody. Um, anywhere that's, you know, got, that's bony or soft. So think of like your elbow, inside your arm, underneath your arm, your kneecap, back of your knee like those areas can be quite painful. Um, and I think that can be quite challenging to tattoo as well because you're not dealing with a flat surface, you know, and everyone's got a different shape. So if you're trying to tattoo something into a, you know, like it's like you're going... Where it scoops in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, like a, a kneecap and you've got like, you know, it, it comes up and then it sort of scoops in and it's like it's got a different shape. That can be a challenging, yeah, very challenging. You've just alluded to it because I was going to ask, how much does it hurt? It, like I get asked this all the time <laughs> in the shop and the answer is the same for everyone. I haven't got the answer because everyone's pain tolerance level is different. So I don't know what it's gonna feel like for you. So, you know, that, that, that is the answer to it. But if I, if I was to liken it to something, it's sort of like a bit of a burning feeling. So when a tattoo's finished, it feels like sunburn. It's got that sort of a hot sunburny feel. What about during the process? It, it's got a bit of a a Bernie feel but like that that's from my perspective so I don't know how you know someone else might say it feels more like a, a cutting sort of feeling I, I don't know you know it, everyone's different so because it's needling essentially as you said we're right at the start when well as you said before when you were with the Indian ink 
sticking yeah. needles in, but this is just it on a more refined basis. Well, it is. It is because a tattoo machine, like the the needles, uh, are moving like very fast back and forth. So if you're doing it, you know, like with a pin, you're just doing it, it essentially in slow motion by hand. Does it hurt more doing that? Which just the, sorry, just with the pin. Does that would that hurt more than than say uh, with the tattooing machine? Oh, I don't know. I think it depends again on your pain tolerance level. But I would say yes, uh, less. The tattoo machine would hurt more probably. It's probably a lot faster. There's been a growth of the whole tattoo industry. And is there a standard for tattoos that some do, some don't have? A standard, as well, in... Okay, if you get something on your arm or wherever, it's there for life. Yes. And what makes a good tattooist? Um... That's hard to answer that because there's so many different styles of tattooing out there. So I think what makes a, a good tattooist is, um, is um, a, a good imagination, a good artistic ability, good um, people skills. So you need to be able to communicate um, to, with the, the customer it's like you, you have to go into their mind to see what picture they have of what they want. Because if you, if you can't give them exactly what they, they want, they won't be happy. So, and you can't read them minds either. So, so um, knowing, knowing what they want is a big part of it. So say if someone comes in and they want a dragon, well, you would want to know what sort of dragon. Do you want a medieval dragon? Do you want a... a Celtic dragon? Do you want a um, Chinese dragon? Do you want just the head? Do you want the body? Do you want wings? Do you, you know, like there's all these variables that play into it. So I think the communication's a big part of, of that. Um, but how good a tattooist is can be based on, on um, the client as well, as in, as in some people like a rough looking tattoo and some people are really fussy and they want it to look like a photograph. So there's all these variables in between of that. So are you an artist, do you draw them or are they generally someone goes out of a book that's already been drawn? How does that it, work? Well, that, that's, that's evolved over the years. So I can remember, you know, when everybody picked a, just a picture you, we had all the books, we had all the pictures on the wall. You just picked a design and then it was just, where are you getting it? How big do you want it? You might do a few changes to it. You might blend two pictures together, stuff like that. But now the art, artistic side of it has grown that much that um, people are coming in just with an idea and every single thing has been drawn off, one off. So people are walking away with something that no one else has and that's what they want. You know, they, they, the arts evolved, so it's, um, yeah. So you've got to be a good artist before, you, if you want to become a tattooist. Most definitely, yeah. I think um, years ago that wasn't necessarily the case, but now it definitely is. So if you had a, had a good imagination, you didn't have to be a great artist to do a tattoo, as long as you knew the process and the technical side of it, you could do a tattoo on somebody. 
but now the art has overtaken that side of it that yes you 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 know you won't survive in the tattoo industry if you can't draw a decent picture what's the hardest thing to to come up with is it a photo the, yeah yeah I, I, I would say, and, and this again depends on the tattooist, because some people are just naturally artistic. So they can just, you know, you, you see an artist and they can just do a portrait of somebody, you know, and somebody else who might be a great artist might struggle to do that style of art. Um, but I would say that, like, um, to me, I think that a portrait, doing a portrait of somebody's um, like baby or their mother or father or something like that. Um, you can't muck something like that up. It's got to be lifelike. It's, it's got to be spot on because if you just make the eye, if you just put one little bit of ink that shouldn't be there in the eye area, it changes the whole look of the eye. Do you know what I mean? It can make it look cross-eyed. or. <laughs> well, how do you um, cover up when you do make a mistake? Because that must happen. Well, you, know, you don't, it, of course. It's a, but it's a, <laughs> no, well, but it's, it, a, it's a in the moment case by case thing is what, you know, what you would do. But like, I personally have never done a portrait because I've never felt that confident to do a portrait. So, so it's knowing your limitations with where you're at. Yes. Yeah. Not everybody does that, though. You know, some people will jump into doing a portrait when they just shouldn't. <laughs> But anyway, you know, um, I don't want to make it sound like they're, they're the, the best tattoos are, are done by people who can do portraits because there's so many different styles, like there's full colour and to, you know, like, like my arm for instance, not everybody can get a good colour saturation like that in somebody's skin. What, what makes a good colour saturation then? It's it's the it's the tattooist their their technical ability, you know that they actually have to have like a bit of knowledge of the person's skin, um, how you know the technical side of it, like how um, the hand movement, how deep to go into the skin, all of these factor into, you know, a, a good tattoo. You've yep. got a lot of colour on one side, no colour on the other. Well, just um, just straight colour. Yeah. Do you plan to colour both sides? Is that something that's going to evolve? I haven't ever thought of it, <laughs> to be quite honest. I hadn't even really planned that. Yeah. I, I did intend to get some more on this side, though, So and it was going to be in the black wash so I guess yeah so that's yeah. what you call it where it's just sort of a green color it's a black wash well it's meant to be black it's sort of the black fades okay. as yeah so so you know like tattoos will change as your skin changes so they will change as you age so. What have you learned over your time you say they change tattooing is changing what's the biggest thing that you've learned it's gotten easier for people. So, so um, I guess it's like any industry, the, the pioneers and the people who, who started off had to do a lot more than what the people do now. I mean, like you, years ago, you, we had to make our own needles, you made your own colors. Um, uh, 
if you were doing a stencil for a tattoo, you would have to draw the tattoo, then you would have to stencil it by hand, whereas now you've got machines for that. Oh, really? Now you can buy the, all the colours pre-made. Now you can buy all the, um, the needles pre-made. So I think there's a lot of knowledge of, of the, that's been lost which I, I think most indus- industries could say that, like machines have evolved and, you know, it's changed. And the people who know how to do that, do things the old way, are uh, getting less and less. The you styles know. also, you must notice a big change in styles. Yeah, there, uh, there's been years of fads. So, so like, um, you know, I, uh, tribal was a big one for many years. Um, the full, full like black, spiky, tribally full sleeve stuff like that. I remember the Southern Cross phase, like everyone was getting a Southern Cross, um, which I, d- I don't know many tattooists that enjoyed doing them. They they were horrible. Um, Why is that? Just um, that can can have its own degree of difficulty because you've got straight lines and points, you know. So you've got to really know where you're going with that needle, not to overlap and to make a nice, nice point, nice straight line. If especially if they just want the outline of it and not coloured in, so that that you know there's a degree of difficulty to it. Um, infinity that is um, has been a big one just recently. A lot of people have been getting the infinity. Um, yeah, um, the realism has has started to evolve a lot. So, so it's gone from um, people getting an outline. So you've got an outline that's coloured in, to more of no outline and just all the colours and um, more of a shaded. Is that blending in in a tattoo? Is that a difficult thing? It, that again depends on the person, you know, like um, some people are just more naturally gifted at that style than other people um, and that they, they just are artistic. So I, I would imagine that if they weren't tattooing, they would be drawing portraits, you know, portraits of people, portraits of animals. They're just more gifted in that way. Must so, be a great outlet for people that aren't that artistic. Yes, and and it definitely like you never stop learning like so um a a lot of the good tattooists i know would always say that you know that there's you know there's always something new you can learn and it can be on a day-to-day basis so you you might do a tattoo on somebody and and it's the first time you've ever done that particular thing and you have your ideas in play and you've drawn your picture and everything and you're happy with and, and then you do the tattoo and you think Oh, well, and the, I I, sh- I think I should have put that colour there, or maybe I should have moved that leaf over there. Would have looked better. So then you've learnt from that experience, so that next time you you do it a little bit better. Is most that- of it stencil or freestyle? Um, most most of it I would say is stencil. Um, there are there are people that will do freehand, uh, but. I think I think um, a lot of people like to see what they're getting. 
So if you if you're doing um, freehand, so so you're sitting there and somebody's drawing on your skin, you've got to you've got to have a lot of trust in that artist's ability that the product is going to look like what what you want at the end of the day, um, because all you've got is a few random lines happening and you're trusting that it's going to look how you want. Whereas if you've got a stencil, the picture's there. You can look at it, yeah, that's the spot, yeah, happy with that. Or can we move it over there a little bit or can we make it a bit bigger? You know, yeah, there's, you know, there's more of, um, yeah, that's what it's going to look like. How do tattoos change then over time with body changes then? As in? Well, you get one when you're young and fit and you, you get a certain design, a certain shape. Then as you're not so fit, is that something that people should take into consideration? Well, I think, yeah, that it depends on the, the area of the body. So if, you know, like probably isn't an obvious example, if you were a young, a young girl, you probably, and you intended to have children, you probably wouldn't get a big tattoo on your belly <laughs> because it, you're going to stretch it out of proportion, you know, because the skin changes. Um, but I've found like, because a lot of mine haven't changed that much with my age or me increasing in size from when I was younger. They haven't changed that much. They, they look a little bit older. Some of them might be a little bit faded, um, but they haven't changed that much. Is it something that you go back and polish up a tattoo that may have faded? You, you can, yes, you can. Does that you happen can. very often? Um, it does, not not a great deal, but every now and then, like somebody will, you know, that they'll be like in their, you know, 60s or 70s and they go, I got this tattoo when I was 18 and just want it redone. And um, you re-outline it and colour it and it's like a brand new tattoo. Is there just as much work when you are redoing something? It can have its um, it can have its own degree of difficulty, because um, say for instance um, you're trying to rework something that is a face, so it might be a face of an animal. I'll use a tiger as an example. So you've got a really old design that you can't find the picture off anymore. So so you can't look at the picture to go oh yeah that yep yep that's you know because it does spread a little bit so it so it's not as sharp and defined um so you've really got to tap into your okay that's a nose oh yeah i can see that's the mouth and you <laughs> so it's yeah it can be very difficult to go into an old tattoo and try to make it look look good in some cases it's not even worth doing it you would just say to the person I can't work with that. It's faded. Just get something over the top of it would be my advice. Well, that's an interesting thing that you bring up about going over the top. Does much of that happen? Is there, are there many repair jobs that have to happen? Well, it, in um, tattoo uh, circles, it's called covering something up. So um, it can happen a lot with names. So somebody will get someone's name on them. <laughs> I'll love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and then they're not together and they'll come in and go, I want to cover this up. And in some cases that can be harder depending on, on how adventurous they've been with the name in the first place. So I have, I have covered up um, a name that was thick, bold, you know, on the chest, female, <laughs> but, but bold, thick, black, and you know, I'm like, why didn't you just get a nice fine line just in case? <laughs> Do you ever talk to someone about when they want to put a boyfriend's name on or a girlfriend's name on? Do you talk to them first? Yes, yeah, yeah. You always, um, you always do, and and um, you you make sure that that if you, it's I call it a um, uh, duty of care. That if you think that somebody might regret something, you always say something. Uh, you know, it's your right to get what you want, but are you sure? Have you really thought about it? Is this really what you want to do? And I can remember, like this was years and years ago, when there was this young couple, and this um, and this guy was getting this girl's name, and um, I I went into my so are you sure you want to do this? It's going to be there forever. You you sure you want you want to do this? And he turned around and said to me, he said, actually, he said, I don't, I don't want to do it. And I'm like, well, what are you doing then? And she cracked the shits and, and stormed out of the shop. And he said to me, thanks so much for, for saying that. He said, we've only been together for like a month. Wow. And she wanted me to get her name. And I'm like, well, that's like, you know, that's a whole nother level. And if I hadn't said that, he just would have gone along with it just to keep her happy when it wasn't what he really wanted. That's a big red flag yeah. in the relationship. And so me bringing it up helped him, it gave him an out. So, yeah. What about people coming in for their first tattoo? Do you counsel them about what their choices are and that sort of thing? Well, it can depend where they want to get tattooed. So if somebody comes in for their first tattoo and they want to put it straight on their hand, Okay, yeah, you know, like you pick another spot because, like, you don't know about the stigma that's attached to it. How people, uh, job opportunities, like all of that comes comes into play. Like, don't get it there straight up, you know, because I think there can be like um, there's there can be this bit of a people will get tattooed on their hands so if they're wearing long sleeves or whatever they look like they're heavily tattooed when actually that's the only tattoo they've got <laughs> so it's like this i'm cool sort of thing i'm tough or i'm cool or i, I don't know but you know like, so you you try to talk people out of you know like a stupid placement of where to put it because you you just know they're going to regret it in the future so so if somebody comes in, they want something on their face. I know we won't tattoo someone's face unless they've already got a lot of tattoos. So they know what they're walking into. But if they've got one tattoo, say, on their arm up here, and then they come in, oh, I want a tattoo on my face, you go, oh, no, I don't think so. But, you know, like, there will be some that will, um, but most tattooists are going, no, no, you know, it's that's something that is for heavily tattooed people. 
Well, Mike Tyson famously had the tribal tattoo on his face. What did yeah. you think when he came out with that? Oh, you know, his Could choice, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't really think about it. I didn't really think about it much. Um, did he have any other tattoos? <laughs> I, I really don't know, but I know that it was just a standout when he did do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, like in New Zealand and the Maori people have been doing it for a long time and there's a lot connected with that. Like the, I think they call it the, I wouldn't like to try to pronounce it in case I insulted somebody, but you know, like they have their... The ones on the chin. Yeah, yeah. It's been around for a long time, that sort of thing. It's so, a fad that, as you say, comes and goes. What about people that are, as you say, wanting to look a bit tough? They'll get that one on the hand that it, 20 years from now, if it doesn't remain mainstream. Yeah. What do you say to people that have got them and go, wow, what do I do now? Well, you know that you, you can always get them lasered off. But, you know, like I, I, I would say, you know, just make sure that, you know, you're going to be happy with it forever before you actually go down that path, especially if it's in a spot that you can't hide. Where's the most common spot these days? Common? It's probably, probably like um, forearm area. So the top of the forearm there or the bottom of the forearm there around, around the wrist area. So, so they're fairly popular, but I can remember refusing to do that area and only doing to here for the same reason of jobs and how people looked at you and, you know, um, you wouldn't go down here unless you were heavily tattooed, but now they're all wanting to go there straight away. And you can't really refuse that because they'll just go to someone else who will do it. So, you, you know, you're essentially losing business. So, you know, it's, it, that's evolved where um, that's become a, a more accepted, but the hand and the face is still a bit like, oh, you know, or the, or the throat, like the front of the throat. Yeah, talk to us through the whole process of learning to be a tattooist. What happens? Uh, well, that, that again is, is based on like a, individual shops and they all have their own things so you know their own way of teaching somebody um, but you would it in my opinion you you start off with somebody seeing just being in the environment and and just being around it you you don't start them off with a machine in their hand straight away because I think that you know like in that way you could potentially be creating somebody who's just going to leave and be at home backyarding. So, so you make sure that, that they really have a love for it and that they're, pre they're prepared to do all the things that are behind the scenes before you give them that side of it. And then, you know, you do it very, very, you know, gingerly small, simple things and then a little bit bigger and you know so easy areas and then moving up like that but not on a person straight away like you have fake skin um when I first first tattoo I ever did was on a um I think it was a piece of meat I think it was a pig's 
a pig's roast, but it was a, like flat, and I just tattooed that. And and how did it go? I've, I've got photos of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was all right, but that was like a long time ago. Tattooed the pig and then had roast pork for dinner. Well, vegetarian. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't know. And there was an amount of grossness to it, I have to say. but Vegetarianism, but... it's part of your life. What made you a vegetarian in the first place? Uh, my whole family turned vegetarian when I was a teenager. So, and as it turns out, I'm the only one who, who was stuck with it. Although my son's a vegan, so... So he's followed along down that path as well. Um, I'm not a vegan, so I'll still have like um, eggs and um, and cheese, milk. Yeah, have you just... ever had any thoughts of eating meat? No, no, definitely not, no. Because no. I was a vegetarian I... for years Yeah. and then started craving meat, so I started eating meat again. Yeah. I, I think because I was so young when I turned vegetarian and um, believed in it so much that as as I got older and people were like, oh, you know, have a bit of meat and I believe, no. And, and I got to a stage where I, I didn't even remember what it tastes like. So so I wasn't missing anything. To me, you know, I've, I've never had a McDonald's burger ever in my life. So... I don't know how many people could say that, <laughs> but um, well, now they have the meat substitutes. Yeah, I've never had that either. I've actually <laughs> never been to McDonald's here in Gympie, so you know. Um, but yeah, I couldn't remember what it tastes like, so I wasn't missing anything. But the few times over the years, like, so you could buy vegetarian pies and stuff like that, and um, I would know straight away from the first bite if if they'd given me the wrong thing. And so, you know, first bite, oh, something's wrong, it's meat. And I would have a revulsion and feel like, ugh, for days after that. Just Couldn't yeah. get the taste out of your mouth. No, no, it was more like the whole feeling of it, the whole, uh Is it an energetic thing? I think so, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, um, because uh, animals have a conscious, you know, they're, they're a conscious being. I believe trees are conscious beings. So, you know, like, I, I don't like people cutting down trees either. <laughs> to, me that, to me, that is killing a being that's, that's alive, you know. So, so um, you know... The whole um, don't eat anything that has a face, you know. They, they've got eyes. You can see they've got feelings, you know. There's a whole thing. Yeah, so I think you're like that. that is ingrained in me fairly much. When you talk about the energy exchange between a tattooist and a person that's receiving the tattoo, it's a lifelong exchange. Is that something that you would agree with? Um... It's that's hard to. I, I think there. I think there is. A, I don't know if I would say lifetime, but I mean, I 
I will remember a tattoo, but I won't remember the person. So if that if they go, hey, how you going? Oh, you tattoo me, and I go, oh, did I? And oh, yeah, and you know, like we'll go and conversation, and then I'll I'll remember them from the tattoo. They remember you because like the whole time that you're doing the tattoo, you're looking at the at that one area and, and the tattoo. You might look at them occasionally, but they're focusing on you for that whole time. So they're, you know, watching you and it's a totally two different experience as in that way. So, you know, and I think it's the same with doing a piercing as well. So, so I don't remember people that I pierce because to me, it's just that, that little moment, but they remember because of their experience, that whole time they've been there they've been looking at me and focusing on me and so I'll, I'll pierce somebody and they'll be staring in my face the whole time like it's a, can be unnerving um but yeah I I I think there there can be like a bit of an energy thing that happens um if somebody starts to feel ill I'll pick up on it like so so it's like um it's like you you're a part of you can pick up on their on what they're feeling a little bit if they if they start you know if they're calm and they're handling it you can feel that if they start to get antsy and and they'll and they're not handling it you can feel that as well so i think you know from a tattooer's perspective you can pick up on on how they how they are in that moment so when you actually get a tattoo, some of them you can't see. What's yeah. the benefit of that? So you've got some on your back. Yeah. Um, unless you look in the mirror, you can't see them. What's the benefit of having them in areas where, and I know quite a few people that have lots and large tattoos on their back. Yeah, yeah. What's the benefit what's the uh the thought of getting them in areas you can't see as opposed to where you can so you can look at them and enjoy them yeah um it's 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 quite a personal thing so i think that uh, like just knowing that it's there is a thing plus the back is is the the best flattest big bit of canvas we have on our body so if you love tattoos, getting something on your back, a full back is like, I can really go to town on this. What do I want? You know, like you've got a nice big area, you know, to to work with. I think Jonathan Thurston's got his wings. Um, what do most people get on the back? It depends. Like it, that's, it's hard to answer that because like, um, because everyone's got different tastes. So like, so there's, all sorts of things you know someone might get a full Egyptian back piece somebody might get castles and wizards um, someone might just get like all animals you know like realistic animals or so so it depends you know like it's it's just all different tastes because you were talking about that you don't like doing faces and portraits what do you like doing me yeah well I I'm retired now so I'm not actually tattooing anymore and I've only decided that this year so but I I just liked doing just like simple little things just you know little flowers yeah 
font, writing, yeah, just simple little things. It can be quite hard tattooing and the longer you're tattooing, the harder it can get, you know, like you really, a tattooist really is putting a lot of energy into doing it. Yeah, and it can be quite um, draining. And stepping back from it this year, as you say, do you miss it? No. <laughs> so it was the right time. Yeah, yeah. Um, because like I'm, I'm trying to move into another chapter of my life. So I want to, um, I've recorded my songs. I've done a video of my songs. I'm uh, done photo shoot. I'm about to launch a website and release my songs at the beginning of next year. And as far as my life and time, something had to give. So I had to let go of something to make room for the new. Because you've got into being an artist now and a music artist as opposed to a tattoo artist. Is it just another way of expressing yourself? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. But my heart has always been with the music. I just haven't had an opportunity to do it. Um, I always thought that I would um, uh, build the shop up to a point that I didn't have to be there so I could concentrate on my music, but um, that hasn't happened. So then I made the decision, well, I have to just do both, which I've been doing. And now that the one's starting to pick up momentum, I have to let go of something on the other side. So that's you know but but the songs and and my music is always what I've wanted to do because as you said you've still got uh stuff that you wrote when you were back in your teens yes yeah are you recording that sort of music now? yeah I one one of my songs is I wrote in 1977 how did it feel going back looking back through the eyes of a young teenager and what you saw back then and what you expressed back then I was actually quite proud of myself that the songs that I wrote then, I I think um, they have a lot to say now for how, um, you know, that they had a lot to say back then, but uh, with everything that's happening at the moment, they just seem to scream for now. Um, So they're perfect for, to come out now for people to hear and, and I think my life experience has, um, has helped to add another level to it. So if I'd have done something with it years ago, it wouldn't have been as powerful as what it is now. Even my own self-confidence has grown over the years for me to step into this. Even, even sitting here talking to you now, 10 years ago, I would have been like probably freaking out and like, oh, you know, but my confidence has evolved. So I think, you know, now's the time for me to do this. It's as in some, sometimes timing is everything, you know, if you try to do something at the wrong time, it's like the universe just keeps blocking you and you think, oh, I'm not meant to do this, but maybe it's just not meant to happen in that moment um, for some other reason, for some other something else that you need to learn to help you be better at it for when it's meant to happen. So you're a fatalist? 
What does that mean? <laughs> well, do you believe in fate? Does it is it meant a uh, sliding doors moment when things are meant to happen when they're meant to? I I do I do, I do believe in in destiny, but I also believe that um, there's many different paths that can be chosen through our life, and we can choose a wrong path. So so you know like. Um, that based with a bit of choices as well and you know maybe you might make a choice and think oh that that was the wrong way I should have gone the other way but I, I guess a bit of both and it's you're a, talking about the songs that you wrote back then uh, quite relevant today why is that um, because um, they're very nature based as in having respect for nature um, they speak about um, the injustices of society, um, the inequality of society, um, uh, that the, re the rich and the poor and why can't everyone be more loving and why can't life be more even and why can't everyone be looked after? Because if we have the means to do that, so why isn't it happening? Why, why are some people you know, got more than they need and other people have nothing. Like, to me, that, you know, so so it speaks to that sort of thing. Um, Is that down to a karmic journey? I guess, you, yeah, you could look at it that way. But if, if things were more even, then maybe karma would play out in a different way. We were talking before about COVID and you're quite passionate about that. Do you think that that is playing out in the right way? No, no, in I don't. What, what way? What 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 experiences are you having? Um, I think I think that this is really important, and now I know, don't know what to say. I I think that um, that uh, the people that are making the decisions about it aren't making the right decisions. They're telling people what to do, how to how to live their lives, and I think that's wrong because I believe that we're all born here with free will, so we all have the right to choose what we want to do. I think there's a lot of lies being told um, and all of this is, is um, uh, has an agenda of greed. Um, that goes back into the unfairness that I was talking about before, you know, that there's, you know, let people do what they want to do. Let them live their lives. If they're not murdering somebody, I mean, yeah, sure, like morals, right and wrong, but, you know, like, you know, I know there, there has to be some rules, some regulations, like, so I was thinking about this just the other day. So driving a car, so we have rules based around getting a license, driving a car. That's fair. I, I, I can live with that because if you, if you speed, potentially you might have an accident, you might kill someone else. That, that, that is a real thing. But this other stuff, this stuff that's happening now, I don't think that that's right or fair, that they, have, that they are moving in saying, you can do this, you can't do that based on, on what you decide, what your choice is.
Well, it's, again, you come back to the have and have nots. There's going to be a lot of um, disenchanted people at that stage. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's going to be more disenchanted people. I think there already is a lot of disenchanted people. There's a lot of people that that um, have been in a career for most of their lives, have devoted their lives to something that they're having to walk away from because they're being told that they have to. They have to do something they don't want to do. It's not sitting in their heart. So how can somebody else say, no, but you have to do it? But hang on, it doesn't feel right to me. And I'm not harming anyone, so so why? Because like, I think there's a, an agenda that's been put forward that you are harming somebody if you don't do what they're saying. And I don't- As in the vax. Yes, and I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that somebody refusing to do that is going to harm anyone. How's they, it affected the tattoo industry, COVID? Because there's that close proximity. Did it really uh, affect your business? It, we're, we're doing, we're just doing what we're doing. We're just, it's business as usual. I mean, we wear gloves, um, you know, so uh, we, we have a lot of knowledge of cross-contamination and, and all that side of things we have to, to be what, to do what we're doing. So it hasn't, you know, it, it hasn't really affected um, as yet. So uh, I guess it would like if they, if they push more of this apartheid that they've got going on of- um, It's a big word. Of trying, yeah, trying to cause division between people who, who, who are and people who aren't, that, that could, you know, that will, it will affect everybody. So that's, that is what they're calling it, a medical apartheid. And I think that's what it is. They're creating um, discrimination against each other that doesn't have to be there. People can sit together and have different choices it doesn't, you know, it, uh, to me, you know, I'm speaking from how I feel. Is this part of the rebellious you that's coming back to the fore? No, this is me being smart. <laughs> 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 I had to put that in there. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I am somebody, don't tell me what to do. I'll make my own choices. I always have. And I'm certainly not going to let, you know, some some politician tell me what to do, who I've never trusted my whole life, ever, never ever trusted. So so why would I trust them now? Well, I don't believe that what they're doing is right. Because so, there's been a lot of unhappiness in the business people just here in Gympie. Yeah. Um, well, and it's not just in Gimpy that you were telling me about. No, no, it's this is um, it's worldwide, and and like you know, it's a lot. I don't think a lot of people realise that there that there's a lot of um, people that feel the way that I do. A lot. The media doesn't portray it, and if anything, like um, so, FB place. <laughs> as soon as you try to state your opinion they take it down. So so anyone who's trying to speak their truth is being censored. 
but yet if you're on the other side, they're allowed to say whatever they want. So people are only really getting one side of the story. They're not seeing the side that I'm seeing because I'm looking at the other side. I'm not just looking at what the TV's telling me. I'm looking at and talking to people that are having, you know, like adverse things happen to them. We have them in the shop. They come in all the time, you know. Um, and everybody knows somebody that this has happened to, that's happened to, you know, without going into individual cases. And, and I'm not the only one that is hearing these stories. It's decided to turn off the news and stop listening to propaganda and start really listening to their heart. And what it's saying is that I don't think that this is about a disease. I don't think it is about a disease. What do you put it down to then? Um, some, some sort of agenda of control. So the medical apartheid, is it a culture of fear? It is fear that they're trying to instill in people because if people are afraid, they're weak. If people are afraid, they'll do what they're told. If people are afraid, they won't stand up uh, it's it's the amount of people the amount of fear and stress and and coercion that is going on around this is just criminal everyone needs to start looking through looking through looking at the world through love love just keep spreading love not this this it, it's like this evil little monster sitting over there you know, like ruining people. Why? <laughs> Do you think it has a chance? Control, that's the only thing that I can think. It, it's, you know, that they're trying to put something in play and I don't like it. If there are a lot of people or enough people rebel against what's going on, do you think it will change what's happening with, say, you're talking about you want... Uh, more love in the world. Do you think yes. that that will eventuate? Do you think it's possible? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. Because if I don't believe that, well, then I'm back in the fear. I, I'm, I'm thinking fearful thoughts again, and I don't want to think on that level. The more of us that believe that love will conquer, um, the more hope there is for humanity. If your grandchildren were to ask you the hope for humanity, do you think that they have enough hope, your, your grandkids your, and your kids? Because it's the next generation that's going to be affected. Yes. Um, I, I'm going to, in my own way, try to educate them what I feel is right. I mean, it's not up to me what um, their parents choose to teach them, but, you know, um, I will, you know, try to, you know, make them appreciate the, the simpler things in life. I want to end on a lighter note. I want to ask you about Sebastian. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about Sebastian. Okay. So... 
Sebastian um, is my snake and he's 14 years old and he's huge. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's a big boy, but I've had him since he was about two weeks old. Wow. So um, my son gave him to me as a present and um, yeah, he's, um, he's quite the character. I, I'm probably not your typical snake wrangler because I don't, um, I don't have one of those snake hooks and I don't try to force him out of his um, enclosure or anything like that. I, um, I open up the doors and I just leave them open. And if he wants to come out, he can come out or he can just stay in there. I mean, I had his enclosure open for about three hours yesterday and he decided he didn't want to come out. So, yeah, so he was just in his tank, just what's chilling. His, what's his personality like? He's, um, he's quite funny, like he's, he's very quirky, he's very gentle. Um, so I can put my hand, hand in there and just stroke him and he loves that, like he just, like, it's like patting a dog. I, I can see, see in his face that he likes it. I know people, oh, it's just a snake. But, <sighs> You know, I, he's been with me so long, I, I can tell. I can tell if he's antsy, if he's hungry, um, if he wants, you know, if he wants me to open the tank, um, when not to touch him. Um, what does he do if you do touch him and he doesn't want to be touched? Hisses. Like, shh. That's a warning. Have you been bitten? Yes, several times. Several, several <laughs> you times. You didn't take the hint. <laughs> well, no, because he didn't really hiss back then. I think the hissing sort of has come in like in the last three years or so. Yeah. But, yeah, the last time he bit me on my finger was um, just before Christmas last year, actually, and, and that was my fault because I didn't check where his head, head was and I put my hand in his tank and he latched on straight away. And um, yeah, that was, um, yeah, quite a, a good wound that was. Um, yeah, do they bite hard, these, it's a python? Yeah, um, very, very quick, extremely quick. So um, it, almost quicker than the eye can see, um, he'll, he'll have already bitten. And it's and it's done. So you know, other times he's bitten me. I haven't even known because he'll bite like three or four times in a row. I haven't even known that he's bitten certain areas until like oh, there's a bit of blood there, or he's bitten there. Whereas this the, this last time, it's like his level of intelligence had risen a little bit, and he knows who I am. He knows me better than anyone because I do everything for him. And when I put my hand in and he and he bit. I just let out a scream and he backed straight off. And then I just closed the door. So he, he knew straight away. And when I, when I went over yesterday and I said, I oh, know you didn't mean to do it. He, he almost, he looked like he, he knew he'd done something wrong. That, that was the feeling I got from him anyway. So, you know, but then I believe that trees have a consciousness. So there you go. <laughs> So I'm certain go, certainly going to believe that my snake has feelings and thoughts. 
does he get out and cuddle and give you a give you a cuddle? Are they are they sort of um, affectionate? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not so much now because he's so big that like if I if I were to hold him, I need to have both hands and hold him, and his head's right down there and his tail's right down the other direction. But when he was younger. You know, he used to like cuddle, cuddle into me and go down the top and yeah, squeeze onto me like a cuddle. He'd squeeze me. Yeah. Now, if he squeezed me, I'd be a bit frightened because he's pretty big. Because that's one they talk about the old boa constrictor. Does he wrap around and is that? Sort he of... tries to. Um, I I have from the word go never let him wrap around me i've let him wrap around my waist but you see like some people they'll let their snake go around their neck i've always never let him do that so as soon as he has tried to to go around my neck i've just pulled him straight off so that's just something i've always done i know you've got a snake and you've got a python but are you afraid or have you been afraid of snakes at all i have um but not now so I'm not afraid of snakes anymore since I've had Sebastian and I'm not afraid of spiders either. Whereas I used to be horrified of spiders. But now I can actually, you know, I'll reposition a spider outside. I don't like to kill anything. But I'll, you know, grab a spider and put him outside rather than the Kaz from 15 years ago going, ah, get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to crawl on me in my sleep. You know, what now is it, I, just familiarity? Yeah, I, I think it's just um, I've gotten over that fear that um, of um, them being dangerous or um, I don't know. An, another thing that we've been programmed to think that, you know, the spiders, snakes, you know, I think it's all. It might be a past life thing, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's interesting that Sebastian has such a personality. Is it he something, does. though, that, that's the interaction with you, that he really warms to you? I, I think that's a big part of it um, because I uh, spend a lot of time with him. So I talk to him every single day. Um, he watches TV. I know that sounds weird, but <laughs> but he'll position himself in the tank and just stare over at the TV. And they say snakes can't see, but I think what it is is that they can't see the same as what we can see. So because I've spent so much time with him. So like um, I suppose, you know, like there's other people that would have snakes and they might they might only interact with them when they feed them you know, or when they clean their tank. Whereas I interact with Sebastian every single day. So that gives me the ability to open up his tank and put my hand in and pat him. So long as his head's behind, uh, in front of where I'm patting, not behind, if that makes sense. So if I put my hand in front of his face, I wouldn't do that because at the end of the day, he's still He's still got his instincts in play, which was why I got bitten last time because I put my hand in front of his head and he just reacted immediately. So I always put my hand behind him. 
And so he does enjoy that tactile contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's... he's Because um, if, if he does a, um, a shit in his tank, I always clean it straight away too. I mean, I know I wouldn't like my home to be dirty, so I always get in there and clean everything up straight away. And it's almost like when he does it now, because he seems to be getting smarter, that he's like, come on, clean up. <laughs> you know, it's like he has this look of, come on, and he'll position himself so I can get in there and clean. Doesn't disturb me. He'll just sit on there on the shelf and just watch me clean his tank. What does he eat? Rats. He's on, he's on extra large rats. So where do you source them from? Just from the pet shop. Yeah, yeah. They're frozen. I've never, um, I've never fed him live because I just think it's um, cruel. So the frozen ones, they're just, um, they're put to sleep. And so I just thaw them out and then just um, feed him those. What's he like with other people other than you? People are more scared of him now. But when he was littler, he, he was fine. He wasn't really happy about it. So for, I think for a few years there, when he was a bit smaller, he was a bit of a novelty. My friends would come around and, and I'd grab him out and then they'd want to hold him and their kids would want to hold him and he'd get agitated. He wouldn't like it because they, you know, they must feel different, smell different, just the whole, you know, compared to me. But I, you know, then I'd just put him away. But I haven't had to do that for ages because nobody wants to hold him these days because he's too scary. <laughs> he's too big. Okay, Smith, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. You're welcome.